First Thess- or Second Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter three. Second Thessalonians, chapter three, verses one through five. Are you afraid to pray for patience? You might be, since the Bible says tribulation works patience. That's Romans 5.3. You'd essentially be praying for tribulation. Suffering certainly produces patience when it is endured. There's even that old expression, the patience of Job, based on his having to endure suffering of such magnitude for so long. The patience of Job, however, is only one kind of patience. There's another, at least. It's here in verse 5. It's called the patience of Christ. It's a patience we definitely want to pray for and see produced in our lives. And so verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul thought it important that believers pray for the furthering of the gospel. If for no other reason, it calls us back to our priorities. I mean, there are a lot of different things that we can be praying for from time to time, and, um, and they're all important. But we sometimes just need that reminder that people need eternal life. And, and so Paul's praying about the furthering of the gospel. So if, if we haven't been doing that or if we've gotten away from that, let's reintroduce that into our prayers. There are a lot of things we can be passionate about. There are a lot of things to discuss that are important. None of them is as important as the gospel, and none of them should capture our passion more. And, and so, you know, talk about, we can talk about whatever we want. I have, I, I talk about coffee. I mean, it's crazy, right? But I, I, I perk up. <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. I perk up when people are talking about coffee. It's a, it's a thing. But, and everybody has their thing. It's, it's one Sunday, I dare you to just go, just walk around after church and, and eavesdrop on people's conversations and just get an idea of what everybody's talking about. And people talk about a wide range of topics. And all of that's fine. I, I, you know, we're not going to become you know, weird about stuff like that. But really, bottom line, nothing is as important as the gospel. And it should be our number one passion. Uh, and as long as that's true, then talk about whatever you want. Now, Paul depicted the word of the Lord as if it was a runner pursuing his or her course. Run is in a present tense, I'm told, meaning to keep on running. He may have been thinking not of a marathon even, but of a long-distance run over varied terrain. Though there may be obstacles, the runner may yet be swift and make steady, sure progress. He says that the word of the Lord be glorified. That's the intended result. The gospel is glorified when it changes hearts and lives, and you see its transforming power at work in those who receive it. That's how it becomes glorified. He says, just as it is with you, and that reminds us that the Thessalonians were an example of exactly what Paul was praying for. Paul had only been in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, but in that short time, a number of people were saved. Their lives were totally transformed, so much so that the word of their conversions was spreading all over the Roman Empire. 
the word of the Lord had indeed run swiftly through Thessalonica and been glorified. And now Paul wanted that same result everywhere he went with the gospel. And who could blame him? I mean, essentially, Paul breezed into Thessalonica and the gospel just swiftly spread and then he was forced out. Uh, and, and now he's seeing that there's a thriving church going. It, it's a great testimony. And so this verse is really uh, an exa- uh, a poetic way of talking about what had happened in Thessalonica. Now, Paul was writing here from Corinth, and there were problems brewing in that city. The account of his time in Corinth is in Acts chapter 18. After teaching in the synagogue for a time, which was Paul's uh, usual manner, he'd go into a city, teach in the synagogue, to Jews who understood the scriptures, who he could reason with about Jesus being the Christ. Well, he got kicked out of the synagogue. The Jews, uh, some of them rose up to oppose him. And, and we're told in Acts 18, Paul literally shook the dust off, not just his sandals, but his garments. He did this so that not even a speck of dust from that synagogue would remain on his clothes, much less his sandals. It's a dramatic way of expressing his rejection of their rejection. The Lord then appeared to Paul in a vision, and what he said to his apostle is insightful. This is a quote. He said, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, apparently, he was afraid, either keeping or considering keeping silent, and he was concerned about his safety, because those are the issues that the Lord addresses Uh, in his exhortation, and it's no use saying to the Lord, oh, I'm not really afraid. You know, if the Lord says, be not afraid, you you know, it doesn't do any good to say, yeah, I'm not really afraid. You you misunderstood me. And we might do that with other people, but not with the Lord. And so Paul was afraid. And it always encourages me to see that the heroes and heroines of the faith are men and women of like passions with us. Uh, I don't know. Does that encourage you? I know it does to think that Paul had moments like that. You know that expression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? With apologies to FDR, I'm not so sure. There are, there are things out there, plenty to be afraid of, and we'll see what troubled Paul in a moment. I, I guess you'd have to say we have no, the only thing we have to fear is the Lord. That would probably be a, the more accurate Uh, an important translation. But there's a lot of things that we can become afraid of, and the Lord can alleviate those fears and encourage us to press on, and prayer helps. In verse 2, he says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Unreasonable is kind of an unfortunate translation uh, in that it's too, too nice a word. It's a word in the original language that describes vicious, outrageous conduct that these individuals were capable of. Wicked has to do with their character. They were evil, capable of any manner of monstrous actions against Paul and his companions. It says here they did not have faith. They were not believers. Uh, And as non-believers, they were taken captive by the devil to do his will in trying to hinder the swift spread of the gospel. And so Paul As you know, I mean, his life was in danger all the time. Uh, He he was stoned to death at one point and rose from the dead and wanted to go back in the city and preach to the people who had just killed him. But uh, Paul's life was in danger all the time. And he said, you know, these people, they're they're wicked. 
uh, as to their character and their conduct. They're capable of, of terrible deeds. But he says, verse 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Faithless men cannot ultimately hinder the gospel. It's important you qualify it by saying ultimately because there are a lot of obstacles faithless men can construct. After all, Paul had been run out of Thessalonica and the same guys who chased him out followed him to the next town. The Thessalonians were themselves suffering so much that when it was suggested to them they might already be in the great tribulation, they could believe it. Paul had corrected them. He said, no, you're not, and we studied that. But, you know, they could believe it because of the trouble that they were in. Establish can mean a lot of things. The Lord will establish you. Let's see what it meant to Paul. Paul only knew one speed, and he only had one heading. He was full speed ahead, ministering the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If one door closed, he went through another. If he was incarcerated, he wrote letters. If he was stoned to death when he got raised from the dead, he wanted to go back and talk to his murderers. I mean, he was, he was single-minded. Paul's life was not just submitted to Jesus. He was subordinate to the gospel. Nothing was more important to him than to spread the gospel. Jesus, it says here, can also guard you from the evil one. Sometimes it can seem that he's not a very good guard. He seems more like a mall cop than the Secret Service when bad things come into our lives. Those things happen to us that we don't really approve of. We miss the memo, I guess. You ever feel like you missed the spiritual memo about what's going on in your life? That there was no consultation with you? We don't really approve of them happening to us. And when we read about them happening to other believers, now we applaud that because we see endurance under fire from the devil. It's, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. When something happens to me, I, I don't immediately count it all joy. I'm bummed out. I, I, I'm, you know, all of those kinds of things. But when I, when I hear about it happening in others or I read about it historically, I think, oh, Lord, your grace is so abundant. Take almost any of the accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example. When Polycarp was being burned at the stake in Smyrna, he just wouldn't burn. And so they stabbed him. They ran him through. But then his blood was extinguishing the flames. You could hardly kill the guy. He finally died to the glory of God. And we read that and we think, wow, that, Lord, that's fantastic. But then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, better him than me. I mean, you know, I go polycarp, you know, that's, but don't be, don't be giving me car trouble or, you know, uh, whatever it's going on in my life. It's always better, you know, patient endurance always looks better on the other guy. You know, I, I'll, I'll glory with you, but uh, leave me alone. And so it's glorious as long as nothing like that comes my way. God's guard over us is far more spiritual than it is physical. He keeps us spiritually safe in the midst of physical suffering as we yield to him. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, um, I don't know how to say this, but I mean, every verse in the Bible is important. Uh, 
And I've taught through Second Thessalonians before, and this is kind of, you know, always, if you're a Bible teacher and you're not really paying attention, you just, this is just kind of a bridge to verse 5, which is packed with solid stuff. But this verse really captured my attention this week. I, these few words are an absolute gem when it comes to what we would call a proper Christian philosophy of life. They express something so profound that it's easy to overlook. Now, in context, beginning with verse uh, 6, Paul is going to deliver to the church a series of exhortations. Some of them in Thessalonica were blowing it, and they needed to repent and obey the Lord. And so he's saying, now, you know, I'm getting ready to talk to you, and I, I... I, I'm, I'm sure you're going to want to hear what I have to say and that you're going to have a positive response. So that's the context. But if you lift this verse out of its immediate context and just let it speak for itself, I think it speaks volumes to us. He says that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, since Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... We could paraphrase that. This isn't a translation. It's just my paraphrase by saying that you do and will do the things God commands you by his word because we have the completed word of God. Okay, so let me give you an example of how profound or how far-reaching these words really are. Let's say a couple wants to get married. They're both believers. We recommend pre-marriage counseling which is essentially a series of meetings in which we can go over what the Bible says about the roles of husband and wife and about marriage and about children, all that stuff that's so important. All of the premarital counseling in the world is useless unless each of the parties in the marriage do and will do in the future the things God commands you by his word. And, and that's just, that just should arrest you. I mean, I mean when, when I'm talking to a couple and giving them count pre-marriage counseling, the, the assumption is you're doing and you're committing to do in the future whatever God tells you to do in his word. And anything outside of those boundaries, I got nothing for you. There, there's no hope for you outside of that. How can I know what I'm going to do in the future? Well, if I am a Christian, by definition, I'm going to do what is directed by the Bible every time. Marriage counseling often fails. I, I go around telling people that about 90% of my marriage counseling fails. And, and that's, I think, less than the national average, you know. I mean, marriage counseling is, is just often a failure, not because the counseling isn't good or professional, but because one or both parties refuses to do the things God commands in his word. It doesn't make them happy. It doesn't work for them. However you want to put it, there's a, a number of different ways that people you know, express, and I wish they would just say, I just want to disobey God. I could care less about what God thinks. I read the same words you read, and I just, I reject them. I don't want to have anything to do with that. This is how I'm going to live. Instead, everybody's in some kind of a nebulous, you know, I'm really a Christian, but I don't have to do anything that God says. And so this is, these are really profound words that you do and will do 
the things that God commands in his word. And, and as Christians, it's a, the Christian life is an interesting life because you don't really know what you signed up for when you got saved. Do you realize that? I mean, you, just, you don't know anything about what it means to be a Christian, but, but you get born again. And then you find out, oh, I, I signed up to follow Jesus Christ, to, to be his, to be his servant, to, to bring him pleasure, to do everything he tells me to do. And um, that's the way that we have success in the Christian life. And so the real issue is always, do you belong to the Lord or not? Now, I'm even willing, and I've done this with people. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be dishonest with people. I'm even willing to concede a person may not be as happy on earth for a period of time as they might be, whatever that means. So people say, well, I'm just, I'm not happy or this isn't working. And, and then I've, I've, I'm prone to say, I don't really care. <laughs> that's because, because that's not the issue. The issue is, are you saying I'm a Christian? Yes. Then will you do, uh, do you do and will you do the things that God commands you that are clear in his word? And if the answer is no, then we're at a big impasse. I don't know if you're a Christian I don't know if you're a carnal Christian. I don't, I don't know what's going on, and there's really nothing more to talk about because God is pretty clear about those things. And so, yeah, I, maybe you're not as happy. Maybe it's stressful at home and that there's you know, strange situations and things like that. Uh, but you know where you really want to be happy? Where and when you really want to be happy is when you're talking to the Lord at the reward seat of Jesus Christ. That's where you want to be happy. That's the e-ticket, you know. I, I mean, I understand, uh, you know, grief and sadness and suffering and sacrifice and things like that. And some people, you know, we've raised the generation of people. You know, what was it? Tom Brokaw wrote that book, The Greatest Generation, about the sacrifices people made during World War II and all that. And we have maybe the worst generation now. I mean, you know, we're the anti-generation. I don't know who, everybody just, it's all about me. It's the me generation and stuff. And so I want to be happy when I see Jesus. And, And if I'm a little bit unhappy or things aren't working for me as, you know, the way I'd like them to, or if I have to endure some suffering or some, some whatever until I get to that, so that Jesus can say, Hey, you, you did and you continued to do what I commanded you in my word. So guess what? Well done. Well done. That, that's where I really want to be happy. And so I hope you understand. These are, these are fantastic words. Did it make Jesus happy to go to the cross? Over, you know, when they wrote on the top of the cross, did it say happy, happy, happy? No, it didn't. He did it, though the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and despised its shame for the future joy that was set before him. And that joy was to bring salvation to all those who would receive him as their Savior. And so really, there's a sense in which I'm just caught up that these are some of the most important words in the whole Bible in terms of developing a philosophy of life, a Christian philosophy of life, People ask you, what's your philosophy of life? I do and I will do all that God commands. Right? Is that pretty simple? What a great philosophy of life. 
it'll never sell because it's not big enough for a book, you know, but maybe, maybe we could expand on it, you know, but, but I do and I will do. What, and, and that's the only hope that we have in relation to one another as, as well, as we relate to each other either in a marriage or in a church or in any Christian setting. I have to trust that you are doing or at least will do what God says to do when we reach some kind of an impasse or a problem or a difficulty, and you have to trust that I will as well, that we will have this outside authority who is the risen Lord Jesus Christ who's let his will be known in the word of God so that we can independently look at it and say, okay, I'm not really happy about that right now. I'm not really, it doesn't really fill me with joy, but I'm going to do it because God says to do it, and he can only say to do it for my good and his glory because he's my father and he loves me and if I as an earthly father wouldn't do anything to hurt my children why would I think he would do something to hurt me so I'm going to submit to that and if nothing else when I stand before the Lord my ears will be filled with his commendation and if that's if that's what I have to look forward to then what a glorious thing that is now, verse 5, he says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. This is Paul's third prayer for them in this letter, by the way. So he's uh, praying a lot for these Thessalonians. Direct here conveys the idea of getting you to a desired end or goal. And in this case, there are two of them, the love of God and the patience of Christ. Now, does Paul mean their love for God or does he mean God's love for them? Either one of those is actually possible in the construction of the sentence, according to language scholars. And so let's say God means both. There's a certain ambiguity to certain passages that expand it to mean more. Uh, and, and so rather than say, well, I think God means, you know, or Paul means their love for God. Well, no, I think he means God's love for them. If it can be both ways, then it, it is. And it's that wonderful kind of situation, you know, a synergy really where God loves us and we love God and, and, and those two things are intertwined. In a nutshell, the prayer is that their hearts would be directed to consider God's love for them that it might inspire growth in their love for God. Obviously, this love business starts with God. It doesn't start with us. God so loved the world and his love is what reaches out to us and draws us. And so we are always responding to God's love. But Paul prays that we would be directed into both God's love for us and our greater growing love for God. And so that's why one of the reasons why we want to be all about what God has done and is doing for you rather than what you ought to be doing for him. Love is our greatest motivation, God's love for us. It's possible to motivate people by fear or by guilt. Uh, guilt is the, is, the, is the easiest way and the most uh, prolific way that Christians are motivated in the church. And I'll tell you that it's really, it's, it's, there's just something about guilt that it makes it easy to motivate people to feel guilty. And so you'll hear a lot of messages, uh, you know, in churches that just make you feel bad because you're, you're, you're not doing what you ought to be doing, what you could be doing. You're never giving enough. 
you never pray enough. You never come to church enough. Um, and you know what? Those things are probably all true. The, you know, and, and then you feel bad, so you write a bigger check, and you come to a few more services, and that kind of a thing. And so you can, re- you can get almost anything done motivating people by guilt. You really can. And you can get really good at it. Um, but it's better to motivate people by love. And, and to, you know, I think the, the antidote really is to just show Jesus and what he's done and who he is. And, and if you're not motivated by his love for you to love him more and do more for him and his people, then the other motivations are carnal anyway. And there's something wrong on a deeper level. And so we want to be all about what God has done for you. As far as patience, does Paul mean the patient endurance of Jesus? Or does he mean they're patient waiting for Jesus to come for them? Again, either one of those is possible, and so we see both of them being true. Jesus certainly displayed endurance as he lived every day of his life anticipating the cross. Think just about the first 30 years of his life on the earth. So you're, you're, you're God. You're part of the eternal triune Godhead, and you create the world, you create the universe, heaven and earth, and find, you know, at some point in human history, at just the right time, the Bible says, Jesus, you're, you, you come and you're born of a woman, you're now the God-man, bound in a body, bound by time, and for the first 30 years of your life on earth as the God-man, the only thing that they have to talk about is a couple of things that happened when you were born, your baby shower, as it were, when a few guys, weird guys from Persia brought you gifts, and then uh, an incident where you almost got lost at the temple when you were 12 years old. And and so you're, you're Jesus... And for 30 years, you live in relative obscurity doing almost nothing, working with metal and wood and uh, stone that you created, and now you're forming it into furniture and things like that. You talk about patience. You talk about learning patience and just waiting and being patient. It's, it's mind-boggling. Jesus' life was all about patience. And we must remain patient waiting for the Lord to take us home. Impatience, because he hasn't yet returned for us, gets us off the path that leads to eternal life. It's easy to think, well, let me put it this way. I think we all believe that the Lord could come at any moment. I would hope you believe that. That's what the Bible teaches, and we, we, I think we talk about that more than any congregation on the face of the earth. Every week, what do we say? Ready or not, Jesus is coming. And so we're, we're all about that. But that doesn't mean that we can't think, well, he didn't come and he hasn't come, and so we have, you know, you, you kind of can drift away from that. Uh, and it's dangerous to grow impatient in that. Uh, we, we really need to, to hold on to that. We used to sing, we must wait, wait, wait on the Lord. It's great 
spiritual advice. And so wait for the Lord, wait on the Lord, um, let him develop that patience in you. This is the kind of patience that you want to pray for, the patient waiting for Christ or of Christ, looking at the Lord in his patience, waiting, 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 and then ministering on the cross for you, waiting now to return for you, for the Father to give him permission, and are waiting for him sometimes in suffering, sometimes through sorrow, oftentimes in grief, sometimes in joy. Maybe we're not completely happy. Life isn't going the way that we think it should. But this, this, is, this is also temporary. And Jesus will, he'll, he'll meet with you one day. He'll, and, and, you know, people say, you know, people in the world, they say, well, when I see God, I'm going to ask him a few questions. Some of the, I don't think those people are, well, they will, you know, because all roads do lead to God at the great white throne. They'll see God, but they're, they're not going to have any questions. They'll be like the rich man in Hades who says, wow, you, you got to tell people. I just, please send somebody to talk to my family because I, I understand now what, what's been going on. And so just hang in there. Uh, things may get worse before they get better. Nobody wants to be Polycarp but uh, some of us may have to endure suffering for a season so that we will know that joy in the morning. Amen?